0: Every life tells a story. Every day is a snapshot of where you come from and where you're going. It's what connects us and what sets us apart. It allows us to know and truly be known. Your story is living proof of an idea, the conversion of idea to action. The worst day of your life becomes the first day of your testimony. Your weakness gives way to God's glory. Your tragedy makes way for triumph. People are searching. What will they find when they look to you? You have a story, and someone desperately needs to hear it. You have a story worth sharing, with and for one another. I had learned from when I was a child how best not to get in trouble. You know, I actually like Coke and not Pepsi, (laughs) and back in the day, that's something I would have really gotten in trouble for, you know, ordering the wrong drink. And it just sounds so stupid, but when you have like clipboards flying at you or I wore, you know, there's a vacuum cleaner hose nearby, like you just do whatever you can not to get in trouble. You just try and keep the house as peaceful as possible. Um, So you just order Pepsi. Okay, I was um, born in LA and when I was one, my parents got divorced. And in the divorce, my dad got my sister, um, who is six and a half years older than me, and I stayed with my mom. Uh, my first stepfather, he abused me in every possible way. Second and third stepfather are just kind of intermingled. I don't necessarily remember a chronological timeline for them. Um, My mom was really unhappy by then. She just, life wasn't going her way. She couldn't keep a steady job. We didn't have any money whatsoever. The frustrations my mom felt, she definitely took that out on me. Um, I was abused pretty much every day. Um, There was always a reason. There's always something wrong. There's always, you know, a homework paper that's missing or I didn't set the table right or I said the wrong thing or I was too happy or too loud or too sad or for whatever reason there was sometimes you don't need a reason. I used to go to school with um, just like bruises all over my body and like cuts on my lips and cheeks and bruises right here. Um, My mom was really good at making sure that the house is perfect and that everything was great and okay um, when the social workers were around and then as soon as they left life was back to normal in the midst of all of that there was a man I don't remember him really he would come to my house every Sunday, every Sunday morning and. The only thing I remember is laying in bed on Sunday morning and listening to him honk his horn outside my house. He would just honk and honk, and I would just lay in bed waiting until my mom said, okay, you can go, and he would take me to church, and sometimes he would lay on the horn for five minutes and she would give up, but sometimes he'd be out there for 30 minutes, just laying on that horn, waiting for me to come outside and waiting for my mom to let me go to church. When I was about nine, my aunt, Wendy, called and asked if I wanted to come visit her in New York. So I flew across country and it was an awesome summer. (laughs) It was um, just I got three meals a day. I got clothes. I was like the doll they never had. I was like the daughter they never had. It was, it was really just a lot of fun. At the end of the summer, she asked me to live with them and I said, yes, I didn't even think twice about it. Um, It was just a really big culture shock for me from going from a house that was just really chaotic, no routine, no schedule to a house that was extremely orderly. So after a year, I moved out and moved in with my aunt, Ling, and she, um, she was a little more normal. <laughs> she was a little more lax, and it wasn't as big of a culture shock for me. My biological father had actually moved to Southern Illinois um, a few years before that to open a Chinese restaurant, and my sister had moved with him. The restaurant flopped, but my sister um, wanted to stay in Southern Illinois, and he went back to California. Well, when I was, after my dad passed away, um, my Aunt Ling decided that I needed to get to know who my sister was. So she arranged for me to move to Southern Illinois with my sister, all by ourselves. Life was really different in Southern Illinois. It was a lot of partying. There was a lot of drinking. I was introduced to a lot of drugs. Um, I was introduced to pornography. I had a family across the street from my house that had eight children, um, the Haussmans. And they just took me to church with them. They took me to Grandma's house with them. They took me, you know, on family vacation with them. They were just a little bit of normal. They were not expecting for me to be anything. I don't know if they knew what my family situation was like. I don't know if they knew where my parents were. They never asked me. Um, But they just let me come to church with them. And they took me in as their own. When it was time for me to apply for colleges my senior year, I didn't have any money, actually, to apply for colleges, to pay for any application fees or to fly back. I didn't have a car, I didn't have a license. It was one of those moments where I really felt like my life was over. There was no escape route. My friend, Alex, from high school back in Brooklyn, She filled out an application to Adelphi University in Long Island, New York for me. She paid the application fee without me knowing. She applied on my behalf, forged my signature and sent the application in. And lo and behold, I was accepted. One day I decided I was going to go and check out. So I went to the Journey Church in Manhattan um, and I met Nelson's, Pastor Nelson's wife, the lead pastor of Nelson CRC, his wife Kelly. She just, you know, learned that I was a student in Long Island and asked me if I was coming to church every week. And I said, well, it's kind of expensive. I'm a college student. It's not just the subway, you have to get on the Long Island Railroad, and it's like $20 each, both directions. And so, she said, if you come to church every week, I will give you the money for the train every week as long as you come. <laughs> and so I did. I, she gave me $20 every week to pay for my train. Coming to uh, Washington DC after I graduated, I came down here for graduate program at American University. NCC gave me a place to actually dig into my past. NCC gave me a place to confront my past, um, let me heal from that, and just everyone allowed for me to, to love, to be loved for who I am, not for what I do, not for what my major is. Everyone plays a different role, and everyone just does what Christ called for them to do. Nothing extraordinary out of the ordinary just simply loved me, really, Um, from NCCers providing meals for me when I was a protégé, from NCCers who gave me rides so that I could take a nine-month class um, with Living Waters, so that I could get healing from all the abuse that I had back then, got orchestrated every detail of my life and sure it started out a little rough but God always had someone there to make sure that I was okay God always had someone in place for me to give me hope and to give me a tangible hope that he has bigger plans for me from the man who sat outside my house all the way up to every single person at NCC who has just given me rides so that I can continue my healing process, made me foods, prayed for me, prayed over me, just loved on me and pushed me to be who I am and to learn whose I am. That.
1: why does it feel like we can just say amen and go home? You don't need me. What an unbelievably encouraging, true story that continues. When Pastor Mark said we're doing a series on one another, he said, here's a list of possibilities, pick two. And I just picked two. And, and the first one I picked was wash one another's feet. And after I picked it, I thought to myself, "Why did I pick that one? <laughs> like they're like love one another's good, or you know, serve one another." And and I'm thinking, what does washing one another's feet to get the dirt off? What does that look like? Well, how about a horn honker on a Sunday morning? Or an aunt that gives you three meals a day, or a family that takes you on vacation, or somebody who pays 40 bucks round trip on the Long Island Railway, or. or, But I'm getting ahead of myself. Washing one another's feet is interesting, it's awkward, it's different, it's powerful. John 13 is the passage we're going to go to in just a moment. But the opening verse of chapter 13 set the scene for all of the chapters, John 13 through 17. Now, the four Gospels are essentially this. The, the three first Gospels, or what, what we call the synoptics, the one view, they tell the story of Jesus. John comes along and says, okay, you heard the story. Now I'd like you to believe. It's often called the Gospel of Belief. I've told you the story of my friend in this town who had not read the Gospels very much, but he agreed to look at the Gospels when he went on vacation to Martha's Vineyard. And he came back after a week and said, you know, those first three are pretty much alike, but that fourth one is really different. And I know guys who pay $50,000 to go to seminary to find that out. That deal? <laughs> I said that in a meeting. <laughs> the guy came up and said, let me see, seminary, Martha's Vineyard, same price. So there you go. But love is one of the key terms you hear. I just heard her close by saying, this is what love looks like, essentially. Love is one of the key words in John. And it occurs in these five chapters, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 31 times as compared to only six times in chapters 1 to 12. What's happening here is almost a full half of the Gospel of John is given to the last few weeks of Jesus' earthly life, and it's the Bernoulli principle. The Bernoulli principle is the principle where you're pouring liquid into a funnel, and as it gets into a narrow, more constricted area, it speeds up. When you read the Gospels, the intensity speeds up toward the end as Jesus heads toward the cross. So I want to just take a few moments tonight to look at what this love looks like. John 13th chapter, the first 17 verses, and I'm going to read the whole thing. It was just before the Passover feast, and Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. It's, it's a com- the word that's used there is a complete love. So he's going to the Father, and he's going to show them the full extent of his love. The evening meal was being served, and the devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. Then this very interesting word. So, he knew that, so he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. He stripped down to what would be the equivalent of a long undershirt, tied a towel around his waist, and that after that, he poured water into a basin, began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I'm doing, but later you'll understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Now, Peter does this, okay? He, <laughs> he, he promises more than he can produce. He reacts quicker than he thinks. He sets his mouth in motion before his grains, brain's in gear. This is Peter. Then the Lord Simon Peter replied, because he says these blunt things, you know, whatever you give will come back to you pressed down, shaken together. You get it back plus a little. So he says this hard thing and Jesus says a hard thing. Then Lord Simon, oh, no, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part in me, or no part with me. Then Lord Simon Peter replied, Not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. <laughs> Jesus answered, A person who has had a bath needs only to wash his feet. Now people would bathe before coming to a meal like this, but they're wearing sandals or cloth um, uh, shoes of some kind. And their feet are dirty. They take those off, leave them at the door, so their body's clean, but their feet are dirty. That's the point about foot washing. You are clean, though not every one of you, for he knew who was going to betray him, and that was why he said not every one was clean. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes, resumed to his place, returned to his place. Do you understand what I've done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as i have done to you or for you i tell you the truth no servant is greater than his master nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him now that you know these things you'll be blessed if you do them this is a fascinating passage this is within a few hours of the cross he's he's on his way within within 48 hours essentially 36 hours he will be accused, he will be illegally tried, he will be sentenced, he will be cursed at, he will be spit upon, he will be taunted, he will be flogged, tortured, and crucified. And this act of foot washing is included in last lessons. This is this is the last deal before we go to the cross. You, you know, you save the best to the last, you save the seminal things you've been trying to show them over three years, you put it in a parable, which is essentially what this is, it's acting out what the kingdom looks like it falls under the broader category of serve one another but it's very specific mark 10:45 which is a corollary passage says for even the son of man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many what's interesting is that matthew mark and luke at this point talk about the lord's table the bread and the wine what we call communion john talks about foot washing he talks about this act Now, let's just take a moment here to talk about the foot, just as a point of reference. Human foot and ankle is a strong and complex mechanical structure, I'm reading from a definition, containing exactly 26 bones, 33 joints, 20 of which are actively articulated, and more than 100 muscles, tendons, and ligaments. It's the terminal portion of a limb, which bears weight and allows Locomotion. How many, how many of us have either said or, or heard said, you know, when your feet hurt, like all of you hurts? Well, it's bearing all the weight. All of my weight is on my feet as I, as I stand here. Now, I won't tell you what that is, because then some of you math majors will figure But when some of you ladies wear those high heels, so I see more high heels on the hill than I see in Fort Collins, Colorado. I just want you to know that. But in that little quarter inch of a spiky heel, it's like a quarter ton. You can be 105 pounds, but it's like a quarter ton right on that point. All of that weight, I know that discourages you, but (laughs) all of that weight bears down on that foot. There are cultures where the feet are extremely important. What you do with your feet is extremely important. Middle East, South Asia, some of those Asian cultures... It's big. Some years ago, I went with a retired three-star general from here to New Delhi. We were in India for some meetings, and he said, I'd like to see the chairman of the Joint Chiefs. They're equivalent to the chairman of the Joint Chiefs. So I'm walking up with him, with the general up to his office. We go and sit, and we have a friend with us who's Indian, and we're sitting in the office, and I notice that my friend keeps trying to sort of catch my eye, and, but as we walk out, after we've had a half-hour conversation with T and some other things, we, we walk out and he, and he said, Dick, I was trying to get your attention." I said, well, I saw that. What was the deal? Got something on my face? Or he said, no, you had crossed your legs and your foot, the bottom of your foot was facing the general. And that's like the worst disrespect. You might as well hit him in the mouth. You know, you're just giving him the bottom of your foot because that's, that's dirty. Feet are dirty. Not, you know, you can clean them, but they don't stay clean very long. And I don't need to elaborate that. But this was a walking culture. Jesus lived in a walking culture. And Jesus does what he's always done when he's explaining the kingdom. He connects the extraordinary kingdom to the ordinary. He says there's a man sowing in his field and you know, so forth. And he uses this and that. He uses things that they would see every day. So, feet are common. Everybody has feet unless you've lost a limb. Everybody has feet, and feet, I gotta tell you, pretty much are weird. They're not pretty, and those new shoes where you have the toes in them, you exercise. The some of you have those footed, that, I won't just go on record, that's weird. This is going around the world, I'm just saying that. I had a college classmate who walked in after a date one night and he said, I think I'm in love. I said, Really? I said, why do you think that? He said, we went for a walk on the beach. This was Santa Cruz, California. And I got to tell you, I like her feet. (laughs) And I'm saying, you're sick. That's just how that... (laughs) Jesus takes a kingdom extraordinary idea and connects it to something that is so everyday that one could not possibly forget it. When Jesus says, follow me... He's not kidding when he says do it this way he's not kidding when he says this is important that's just not a comment so if you happen to be taking notes here's here's point one because he knows who he is he does what he does jesus knew that the father verse three had put all things under his power And that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. He got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, wrapped a towel around his waist. Here's what the kingdom of God does. This is a culture, the culture Jesus is in, where the powerless, nobodies, Slaves, the taken-for-granted, unnoticed pieces of furniture. They're like furniture, the slaves. Where they wash the guest's feet. Those are the people. The nobodies did that. The people who didn't have power, who didn't have a say in who they were or what they were doing. And he takes that person's place. He does their task. He blows up the idea that it's nobodies who wash feet. He blows it up and says, this is what the creator of the universe does. This is what the father of all creation does. I do what my father tells me to do. I'm washing your feet. When you have somebody powerful in a totally different context, it freaks you out. You don't know exactly how to do that. Years ago at a huge Baptist church in Dallas, Texas, the head of the nursery was an offensive tackle from Texas Christian University. Like he could, go, he could hold three kids in each hand, you know. <laughs> but when you have the, the big brother, when you have him caring for the little people, not doing what we heard on the screen where, where you have the power you abuse, but in fact when you have the power you set free, you lift up. You clean up the dirty places. You don't make them feel more dirty or dirtier or dirty, period. You see, I grew up without money or very much money. I wasn't dirt poor, but I, we didn't have a lot of money. We always had food. And people who were raised with wealth, for example, aren't intimidated by wealth. They can walk into a country club's atmosphere and it's fine. And so but, but if you're not raised in that atmosphere, if you're not brought up in that, it's a little, it's a stretch for you. Now, that person, the person with the money, may be intimidated by some places that are much poorer, less resources. That might scare them. But as a young pastor, there were two kinds of people that made me feel awkward. And it wasn't their fault. I, I didn't say it. It was just inside. One was people with money, because I thought they were different. Over the years, I found out that's not true. It just means they have money. And the, and the other kind of people were PhDs, people who had, like, they were specialists, people who had PhDs in chicken enzymes or something like that. And... <laughs> Because I'm not a specialist. I'm a generalist. I can do 30 seconds at a, You know, you go to some of the receptionist parties here in D.C. I'm good. I can 30 seconds with you and it's shallow and go over here and be shallow and go over there. That's who I'm... So people who are specialists who really know some stuff, that was intimidating to me because I didn't understand my identity fully. But when I have a kingdom identity, when I know as this young lady knows now, that she is a a princess in the kingdom of God. When I know I have been adopted into a royal family, there is something that happens in me that allows me then to easily take a person's foot and kneel down and wash the dirt off of it. There's something about knowing who you are going in that sets other people free when you don't use it to intimidate but you use it to serve jesus essentially says this is how we do it in my father's house this is what happens in my father's kingdom my wife ruth had a younger sister by the name of joanna who went home to the lord at age 42 lovely young woman she came to live with us when she was 19 she had been going through some stuff and she came for a summer and I'm a 30 year old pastor in a band Illinois and she's with us and and we're talking about stuff and and she's attractive and so guys are just around and we, and one day we were going out to get an ice cream cone we're driving along and Joanna said I you know I, I want a guy who's good looking and uh, and uh, got it together and is rich and and I said, and loves Jesus. he said, yeah, that too. And, and just, you know. And, and I said to her, it was one of those moments when you just say stuff. And I don't usually say stuff quite this profound. So I like to quote it because it's one of the good times. <laughs> I, just said, I just said to her, you know, Joanna, r- rather than telling me what kind of a guy you want, why don't you tell me what kind of a woman you want to be? And the guys will take care of themselves. When we find our identity in the kingdom of God, when we know that we are royal blood, when we know that we have a father who won't abuse us, when we know that we have a family that cares for us, there's something about our own identity that frees us to do things we would not otherwise do. And of course, the kingdom of God is all about doing things you would not otherwise do in a positive sense. This is a description of Jesus' identity and his relation to the Father. I read this. I borrowed this. This knowledge does not simply give Jesus the security to wash the disciples' feet. His sharing in the divine essence is what leads him to wash their feet. So it's not just it gives him security, but it's his mission. It, 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 It motivates him. It doesn't just allow him to do things. It motivates him. When you follow me, Jesus says, you become royalty. In a town where power is currency, in this town, where power is currency, whether it's power of position or money or connections or pedigree, I have a question for you. How do you use the power you have? How do we use it? How, does, how is that expressed? Point two, he expresses love by, by necessary precondition. He, he has a strong language for Peter. He says, unless I wash your feet, you have no part with me. That's a strong thing. He says, if you don't, if you don't let me do this, you're out. Or at least you're not in, which is out, you know. When, when Jesus uses the word unless in a different place, in John 3, in speaking to Nicodemus... This is what he says in John 3, 3. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again or born from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. It's what R.C. Sproul calls necessary condition. A necessary condition is an absolute prerequisite for a desired result to take place, i.e., we cannot have fire without the presence of oxygen because oxygen is a necessary condition for fire. He's saying unless unless you understand, unless you get what I'm doing here, unless you allow me to, to wash the dirt from you, you will not understand where I come from. You will not, you do, you'll, you'll not want to participate with me in doing this. He uses that unless we in another place, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood. You, you remember that passage? That's kind of a gory image when he's talking about himself and the last table. When I was at Whedon College Graduate School, I had a classmate who had been a missionary in New Guinea working with cannibals, and he was writing his master's thesis on that text. Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you cannot be a part of it. And I said, so what would they think about it? He said, oh, they get it. You know, they... (laughs) A necessary precondition. Unless you do this to each other wash each other's feet, help clean off the dirt. You don't get to be a part. This is the upside-down nature of the Father's kingdom. Point three, this models a jarring humility, a jarring humility. Years ago, I was laying on the couch watching football. I said, Ruth, could, could you bring me a cookie or milk? You're in there in the kitchen. Would you have that? And so she brought it in, and she handed me the cookie and milk. And I said, thanks, and she looked at me and grinned and said, you, um, you like being served, don't you? <laughs> See, now, Ruth it looks very mild, <laughs> but she can go whack, like, and, you, and you're not sure where it came from. You know, you th- I think she was just making a statement. That sounded like a question, but I think it was a statement. <laughs> and the fact is, I like being served. How many of you well you don't have to raise your hand, but you you just you just say amen to liking to be served. Amen. Oh, see? Being the servee as opposed to the server or whatever however that works, that's where I naturally go. But when something happens unexpectedly, it gets your attention about four or five years ago at the National Prayer Breakfast, which is this large event that takes place first Thursday in February every year, been going for 60 years. Presidents and their spouses always come and so forth. And it's, it's designed to have prayer for the first family. It happened to be in in George W. Bush's administration. And uh, he was up there with, with Laura, Mrs. Bush, and so forth. And, and the dais had several dignitaries, and the person reading the scriptures that morning was General Peter Pace, who was chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff at the time. And the, um, the waiter came behind them and poured coffee for the first two or three people. And then, for some reason, as I remember, stopped and just put the pot down. And so Mrs. Bush didn't get served. And the general looked, and she was sort of looking at her cup, and he got up. And this is, of course, going around the world on scene, And he gets up, and he picks up the pot of coffee, and goes over, and he pours coffee for Mrs. Bush. And he may have poured it for the president. I can't remember, but he poured coffee and went back and sat down. And everybody was kind of sort of cheering, you know, because here's a four-star general pouring coffee. And and he he sat down, and all of a sudden, President Bush got up and walked over, picked up the pot, and poured General Pace coffee. (laughs) And General Pace just took his napkin and put it over his head, (laughs) right in front of the hole. There's something about people you don't expect to serve serving. The the nature of foot washing is that way. I love the story, and we don't have time to elaborate it now. In Luke, the 7th chapter, 36 through the 50th verses, Jesus is at another meal, and of course they eat lying down, and so the feet are extended. And it says an immoral woman, a sinful woman comes in, and she starts washing his feet with her tears and drying her tears with her hair. And Jesus is criticized by a Pharisee in whose house this is. And he said, you know, I came and you didn't essentially wash my feet. And, and the thought here is that, and he tells him a little story. If somebody's forgiven a little or a lot, which one do you think is more grateful? And he said, well, the, the one from a lot and He's saying, essentially, don't you get this? There's something that is so jarring about an act of humiliation that's not where somebody is humiliating me, but where I'm taking the lower place. That's powerful. Now, I have to tell you, Pastor Mark talked about redemption and what happened on the cross as he as he prayed and closed the, the first part of the service, or segued, if you will. And I can't get my mind around crucifixion. I can't get my mind, not around the act, but about the redemptive peace. How could that change my whole life? How could that forgive all of my sin? You know, intellectually, I can't get that. But I can get an act of service. I can get washing feet Somebody says, well, are we supposed to do that all the time? Is, is that a liturgy? And some congregations do it as liturgy. But the idea behind it is more um, succinct than just liturgy. It has to do with the fact that I, that I bend my knee to take your foot, or you bend your knee to take my foot. Let me just close with these two quick pieces. I I was sitting on the pier at Cape Hatteras, North Carolina, on the Outer Banks, in June of 1972, and a man came walking down, and I've told you part of the story, he came walking down the pier, and he had his pants rolled up and his sleeves rolled up, he was tanned, good-looking, deep-set blue eyes, and down on the Outer Banks, they have an accent, which is sort of a cross between East End of London and Andy Griffith, it's sort of that mix, And, and, and I said, hi, how are you? And this guy said, Hi. I'm good. How are you? I said, I'm good. I said, are you a fisherman? He said, oh, I am. Fished my whole life. And he said, and what do you do, Dick? I said, I'm, I'm a pastor. He said, you don't say. I oh, ain't no preacher, but I've been saved 15 years proud of it. <laughs> I said, really? And anyway, he took me out fishing with him the next morning. And one of the things that I noticed about my friend Charles is his feet, because they fish barefoot down there, and his feet like, were splayed, the toes were splayed. He had, like, prehensile toes gripping the gunnels of the... I'm serious. It's unbelievable. But his feet were absolutely scarred. Dorsal fins, gills over 50 years were just scarred and scabby. And Peter the fisherman looks at Jesus and says, you're not going to wash those feet. And Jesus could have said, the only kind of feet I wash are scarred feet. The wounded feet. Not just the dirty feet, but the deep, wounded, hurting feet. I have a friend that I met in 1970. He's now gone on to be with the Lord. His name was Art. 34 years old, high school teacher in Oakland, California. Brilliant, articulate, best user of the English language I may have ever heard to that point. Raised in Brooklyn. An atheist. He went back After a difficult divorce, he went to Western Europe to find his roots. He was hitchhiking across Switzerland. He said it was pouring rain. I was filthy, had a rucksack on my back, and a Mercedes pulls up, and this guy gets out, and he walks around, and he takes my rucksack and throws it in the back seat of his new Mercedes leather upholstery. I get in the car, and we start going. He finds out I'm Jewish, and he lights up. He insists we stop at a guest house and we sit there and this man Edwin starts asking me questions. And he said, I'm, I'm shielded, right? I've got walls up and all of a sudden I'm pouring my heart out to this guy. And he said, "He said, you know Dick, and he's got this Brooklyn accent, he said, there is, there is hearing and there is hearing. And this man was hearing me. He was sucking it out of me. And I got done telling him all of my All of my junk and all of the hate and all of the stuff. And he looked at me and he said, Art, do you know what this world needs? And he said, "I, I thought, I was smirking in my mind saying, what is he giving me some little brittle Sunday school answer? I said, no, Edwin, what does this world need? And he just looked at me and said, what this world needs, Art, is for men to wash one another's feet. And he said, in that moment, I had a vision of the proud, haughty, powerful people of the world, kneeling down and washing the feet of the broken and the diseased and the hurting, and it was like a hand grenade going off in my chest. A few weeks later, Art turned his life over to the Jesus who washes feet. Jesus goes to the cross for the ultimate washing. The old gospel song says, what can wash away my sin? And the answer is nothing but the blood of Jesus. Would you bow your heads and your hearts with me? Lord, thank you that you are the great washer of feet. Thank you that you said if we want to be part of the kingdom, we better get used to it. Thank you that you said that if we want to be with you and be part of you, we need to have your spirit, which is a foot-washing spirit. Thank you for coming into our world in the form of a honker of horns on Sunday morning an aunt who gives us food, a family who takes us on vacation, and someone who pays train fare so we can know you and your people, and a congregation that says, we'll help you continue the healing. Come be a part of us. Lord Jesus, in this moment, whoever sits here tonight who has not known that washing, we pray that in this quiet moment you will so jar and so touch that that one can never be the same. In Jesus' name we pray.